Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest in Canadian politics, especially after Friday's Rogers outage? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. Why is Ukraine upset with Canada? And our weekly Washington report with Reggie Cicchini as we cover frustration with Joe Biden, January 6th hearings, and a whole lot more. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's circle back and start talking about what happened last Friday, of course, with that major outage. The importance of improving Canada's networks is going to be the topic of discussion today as the federal industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, stated, well, you know, everything that happened Friday was, in his words, unacceptable. Thank you for stating the obvious, Minister. Anyway, uh, Minister Champagne is going to be meeting with the heads of Rogers Communications and other leaders today. Laurie Paris has details. A statement from Champagne's office says the minister found last Friday's national Rogers mobile and internet outage unacceptable, describing the services as vitally important in the daily lives of Canadians. He goes on to say the minister expressed that view directly to Rogers CEO Tony Staffieri. The outage saw customers unable to use their cell phones or internet, prevented debit and some credit card transactions, and knocked out access to many healthcare, law enforcement, and banking services. Champagne will meet with Staffieri and other telecom leaders today. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Well, to talk about that and uh, and a number of other issues going on in our nation's capital, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, hope you had a, a better weekend than we all did on Friday anyway. Yeah, it got better on Saturday, that's for sure, but good grief. <laughs> like, who knew? Well, I guess people would have known, but the, the reach of Rogers, you know, in terms of the kinds of services that start to fail in the event that Rogers has a catastrophe, what a day. Well, and, and it was kind of freaky. I mean, we didn't know the magnitude, at least I didn't anyway, until much later in the day uh, when I found out about all the other places that were impacted. I thought, okay, cell service is down, uh, but... But, well, this is all the talk about monopolies and everything, which is, I'm hoping, going to be part of the discussion uh, with the minister today. I guess the obvious question, though, Laurie, uh, you know, the CRTC is supposed to be the ones who do the, the work around uh, you know, governing over the telecommunications industry. And it's supposed to be an arm's length organization. So with that in mind, what can the minister really do here? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing how vulnerable we are to the fact that a private entity is really providing a service that people think of as fundamental and necessary and critical. And so I noticed that some of the words that um, Minister Champagne used in his comments prior to the meeting that's going to happen today, he didn't say critical infrastructure, right? At least not anywhere that I saw. But I think that's going to be the kind of pressure that, that he's under, particularly when it comes to whether they're going to approve this acquisition of Shaw. Because I mean, it is like Champagne is part of the decision-making process for that. He's not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But how is the government going to justify, after something like this, further adding to the monopoly that, you know, right now is causing this kind of vulnerability and not having any, you know, what assurances are they going to take to make sure this is, this is not going to happen again? Well, you know, I've read, a, as you I'm sure have over the last couple of days, a lot of stuff from experts, tech experts, who say it is going to happen again. Uh, it's the nature of the beast. You know, we, mm -hmm. it's humans that design this system, so there are going to be flaws. And uh, one guy put it as explicitly as this. He says, it's just like the computer, it's the Internet system you have at home. You have a modem. And if the modem fails, nothing works. And the Roger says, a lot of modems, real big ones. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this chain reaction. So what, 
we need to do, and I think this is one of the things I hope the minister is going to talk about, is backup. In other words, what's the plan B yeah. if something like this happens? And in other jurisdictions, you can switch over. Uh, okay, let's okay over to this carrier now. But we don't allow that in this country. Every time somebody knocks on the door and says, we'd like to be part of, of your telecommunications business, these three, Bell, Telus, and, and Rogers, simply go to the CRTC and say, you can't do this. You're going to drive us out of business. Oh, woe is us. And, and the CRTC capitulates every time. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the fact that this happened on Friday shows that there are, you know, systemic issues. It's not just issues around some sort of tech hiccup at Rogers. There's also governance issues. And the fact that it took the whole day and so many people were affected, everybody was affected. And I mean, people are saying some, I saw some people, some people flung back at me on Twitter and said, no, no, you know, you can still use your visa. You can still use cash. I'm like, yeah, if you're calling 911 for your child and you can't get through, your visa is not going to help you, right? Like we have a critical mm-hmm. infrastructure problem. And so I, you know, I think there'll be a lot of pressure on the minister to to respond and to explain to people how the government is going to be able to guarantee better service and more reliable service when we obviously need it across the board and Friday was just a disaster. It was, it was, and, and as we say, there's got to be a backup plan because clearly they didn't have one. They're just waiting to, for these guys to fix it, and everybody else was waiting. Uh, lots of other stuff to talk about, too, and uh, we would be remiss if we didn't start talking about the, the uh, conservative leadership campaign, uh, which t- took on a bit of a different show. This was the opening of Calgary Stampede, it's, and it's been a long time because of COVID, and, et cetera, that they've actually been able to have a big crowd there. And as per usual, all the politicians were there, the prime minister was there flipping pancakes. Uh, as if the uh, prime ministers are want to do in situations like that. But the uh, the conservative leaders also met in Calgary, those who want to be the leader anyway. Uh, and uh, interesting, I mean, they it was a, kind of a closed circuit there because it was only conservatives that were allowed at one of these functions. Uh, Pierre Polyev is the hometown guy there, and clearly he's the favorite. Uh, they actually booed Jean Charest. I don't know if he was expecting that. Yeah. Um, and I know, like I saw, same as everybody else, right? Like he's been trying to make some inroads. He actually kicked off his campaign in Calgary when this whole thing started. He knows he's not strong there. And so if he's going to be like, if he's going to try to to appeal across the board as somebody who is able to represent the conservative party and appeal to all of its various, um, you know, factions, constituencies, whatever you want to call them, it's hard to imagine a conservative leader who doesn't play well in Calgary. It's not because you can't have your support from other places, but it's just really difficult in terms of the party's brand and the party's current complexion in the House of Commons and the kind of strength, you know, the bench strength from that area of the country. It's just hard to see how Sheree is going to be able to do this, aside from the fact that Pierre Polyev is the obvious front runner, aside from the fact that there's all kinds of other issues playing out, even if he were to be you know, successful. How is he going to play that if he doesn't really go so well in the West? But on the other hand, as as he's been pointing out, you know, be the way the votes are going to be counted. Calgary, you know, a Calgary riding is worth 100 points, the same as a rural Quebec riding, as long as you get your 100 people to sign up there. So the math of the thing is still kind of a, a wild card, I think. It's hard to predict exactly how this is going to go just because, well, for lots of reasons, but one of them being that point system. That means, you know, you can go sign up thousands of people in a riding and it's not necessarily going to change things for you. Well, that's an interesting aspect of this, which I guess we tend to forget. You know, we'll see the 10-second clip on a, a national newscast of, of everybody cheering Polyev and booing Charest. But, I mean, that's that's his hometown. Of course, Polyev's yeah. going to be popular there. Uh, but 
you know, you're absolutely right that the way the voting system is set up, uh, there's a long way to go here. And Paulie may eventually be the winner of this whole thing. We're not suggesting that, you know, he's going to stumble somewhere along the line. But it's a pretty intricate way of doing things. And, you know, ask Maxime Bernier how, how the system works. Because uh, he was supposed to be the guy that was going to be crowned to be the leader after Stephen Harper. And it didn't work out that way for him. Well, that's it, right? And when, um, like, Sheree has been trying to raise the point, I think, to kind of take a little bit out of the wind of the sails of Pierre Polyev's momentum. Sheree has tried to raise the point a few times that, look, the point system matters. How we count the ballots, how we count the votes matters. And the front runner doesn't always win. The last couple of times the front runner hasn't won. And it's because of that, right? It's because of the down ballot issue. It's because of the fact that they're using ranked ballot and also because they're using the point system that, you know, somewhat ironically, I guess, and somewhat poetically is kind of Shakespearean. Peter McKay was the person who really fought for that system, one of the people, because he was trying to protect his part of the country, Atlantic Canada, where, you know, and and that's my part of the country too, we don't have the big numbers that you see Mm -hmm. in Calgary, that you see in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, right? Like we have, we have small, small towns, small cities. And so in order to protect the voice of Atlantic Canada, he was one of the people who negotiated this equal riding system to make sure that, you know, a riding in Cape Breton is worth the same as a riding in Calgary. But that actually came back to bite him because he was the front runner and he was the presumed winner. And then he lost in the end. Uh, one candidate who was not there, of course, is, well, I guess some people might consider him now an ex-candidate, Patrick Brown, uh, because of the, uh, you know, what that hit the fan with his campaign uh, a couple of days before that. Uh, and and that story continues to evolve. I mean, you know, th- there's been a few whistleblowers come forward now uh, that have said, yeah, he knew all about this. He knew this was illegal. And he, he actually said, yeah, go ahead and do this. He begs to differ. Uh, is this thing going to get resolved in, in any way possible that's, that's going to be something that we can get our heads around because there's a lot of finger pointing going on here and and not a whole lot of evidence one way or another. That's it. I mean, the party's basically saying, look, we've said what we've had to say. He is no longer a candidate. We've turned over everything we've got to Elections Canada, to the commissioner there, because this is an issue of law. This is not just a question of, you know, he he said something that we don't like, right, which would in many cases be bad enough. But in this case, there's a sense that there's possible that the law was broken. And so in that case, the party doesn't want anything to do with it. They're handing the whole thing over and they want to leave. They want to wash their hands of it. But you're right. I mean, right now, in the absence of any clear evidence around this or that happened or didn't happen, then it's a very ugly, you know, he said, she said, she said kind of thing. And so that'll keep going. And usually in these cases, right, when you've got something like this, that's quite serious. And that is affecting a candidate who has a high profile enough around, well, particularly in Ontario, but around issues that are matters of integrity, right? Like those things resonate around Patrick Brown. And so I think this is, you know, this is going to go on for a while before it comes to any kind of a close. I can't imagine any scenario where he is permitted back into the race. I think that's that's not going to happen. He can continue to try to save his political hide. But that's going to be interesting, too, given that one of the one of the pieces of the fallout from all of this is that people in Brampton are saying "Ah, the way he does business here isn't good either. Right. And if it's not good enough for the federal conservatives, it's not good enough for us either. And so now I would say, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the possibility of him running for the mayor of Brampton again as a fallback position. Yeah. Now it doesn't look like that's going to be a shoe in for him either. So life has gotten very complicated for Patrick Brown. 
yeah, you know, his his political career, at least lately anyway, in the last three or four years, has been putting out fires one place or another, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having to step down as Ontario PC leader and, and uh, eventually, oh, he tried to actually run for regional chair and, and then uh, Rob Ford, of course, eliminated that position, or Doug Ford, rather, and said, no, you can't run for it because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So he ran and he became mayor. But that letter from a number of the councillors there, and again, you have to wonder about, you know, political motivation for these sorts of things. But they're looking at this as an opportunity and say, we don't want you here either. Uh, I, it's The guy's got to have a bit of a complex right now, but it, it just seems as if the, the walls are starting to close in on him. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, I think that type of thing is, is from a totally political perspective, good news for someone like Pierre Polyev in the sense that now, you know, his, his win on the first ballot looks a lot more possible than it did before. Because Patrick Brown's campaign was always a bit of a mystery. We knew that, you know, we know that he's a very effective and competent organizer and that he was signing up people. And he, you know, according to him, had well over 100,000 people sign up through his his sites, through his campaign. And so it opens up a bit of, of a wild card for those people who may or may not be looking for someone else to support now. Right. Like it's possible that um, he's going to have people who like the other candidates are going to be able to come in and try to get that support try to go for the candidates that who or for the people who were there to support Patrick Brown. But I kind of doubt that all of those people are going to be looking for someone else for somewhere else to park their vote. A lot of those people will stay home because Patrick Brown's not a viable candidate anymore. And so while it's an opportunity, it's probably not a huge one. And I think, to be honest, this makes a slam dunk for Pierre Polyev all the more likely. And I know there are legal implications to this too. We know last week that uh, that uh, Brown has hired Mar- uh, Murray Hannon, uh, the uh, criminal defense lawyer, uh, high-profile criminal defense lawyer. Yeah. Uh, but but you know when the, the, there were allegations from the uh, the CTV network about uh, some of impropriety on Brown's part, which forced him to resign as Ontario PC leader, uh, they say that got resolved in court, but that took years. Uh, and this leadership is yeah. coming up in just a couple of months. So, I mean, one way or another, I, it looks like he's not going to be able to run. He may be talking about some compensation if, in fact, there's even any credibility uh, to his argument either. But this is a long way from over from a legal standpoint. From a political standpoint, it may already be over. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, it's really hard to recover from this politically, especially when you weren't the front runner, especially when it started to look anyway, right? Like, yeah, you know, like Pierre Polyev has got such a lead and Jean Charest is somebody who's going to be, you know, very much, um, you know, a contender in this. Patrick Brown winning was a possibility, I guess, but it, it wasn't a huge it looked, it looked like, you know, increasingly it wasn't a huge one. And so for him to try to regain any kind of a political presence at this point is going to be really difficult. And also, again, it's the issue around, you know, no matter what exactly is true and what exactly isn't, there is now this resonance of stories around Patrick Brown that are all based on integrity, that are all based on, you know, whether it's a matter of law or not there is now this narrative around him that I think people in Ontario who, who had, you know, who, who would have known his name before would have said, yes, you know, like this is, this has been an issue for him. This has been an issue from day one. Somebody who would have been a political powerhouse seems to have these, this cloud swirling around him. And now there's even more, you know, there's gotta be even more, you know, of the sense that he's someone who's got integrity issues because of the, the weight of this story. And so I think it's going to be really tough for him to try to build anything out from here. Absolutely. Uh, Laurie, as always, thank you so much for this. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon down the road. You too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Canada is facing criticism for its decision to return equipment for a Russian-German natural gas pipeline turbine, uh, undermining the sanctions. That's what the Ukraine government has said. They're pretty ticked off by this whole process and what's going on and the implications. Stephanie Taylor has details for us. Canada's Natural Resources Minister said it would grant a time-limited permit to allow the return of the repaired turbines to Germany. Jonathan Wilkinson said the delivery was necessary to support Europe's transition away from Russian oil and gas and to protect Germany from any potential cutoffs. But the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress accused Ottawa of falling for Russian threats. Some Conservative MPs also blasted the decision for undermining the sanctions Canada has imposed on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, that and a lot more that we want to talk about with our next guest. Uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller is the director of the Indo-Pacific Program and a senior fellow with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Jonathan, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Let's let's start with the the Ukraine situation here and their angst, shall we say, with the Canadian government. Uh, I, I know the accusation here is that, well, the Canadian government has bowed to pressure because of the pressure Germany has been put on them. Uh, and it's all about Russia basically, you know, trying to turn the key on this one. Uh, there's a lot of, of things to unpeel here. But the bottom line is it, it kind of looks an awful like, yeah, we're kind of doing a backdoor deal here uh, with the Germans. And, and all the stuff's going to get returned to Russia anyway. So, I mean, are we really, really serious about the sanctions or are we? Yeah, I think, I mean, ultimately, this comes down to consistency when it comes about sanctions. I mean, sanctions are a tough business. They're not easy. Uh, different parties are, are suffering more than others. And obviously, the Germans uh, have felt the brunt of this, partially because of the decisions, frankly, that they've made uh, decades before this um, with their close energy relationship with Russia. That being said, I think if you're going to place sanctions uh, and strong sanctions, as a result of the egregious actions that Russia has taken in Ukraine, you have to follow through with them. Um, so you have to make tough choices. You're not going to keep everybody happy. And I think this is the playing field that is increasingly difficult for Canada because we often want to engage in these multilateral fora and, and, and make everyone our, our best friend or a close friend. But the reality is, is we have to make tough principle decisions. Um, and I think this is an example of where we sort of dodged one. And, and I get where they're coming from here. I mean, we saw that uh, that walk uh, through the park that the Prime Minister had with the German Chancellor at the G20, uh, and we assumed they were talking about uh, natural gas. I'm sure they were for part of this. But the other part of it is, is Russia basically holding a gun to Germany's head and saying, look, it, uh, you know, if, if you don't get those things back for us, uh, you know, we're going to cut off gas for you again. And so they are threatening them. And, and, and you know, when you capitulate to something like that, you have to wonder you know, what kind of strength these sanctions are going to have in the long term. Yeah, I think, I mean, Russia is fundamentally playing the long game. I think they've been playing the long game since this uh, conflict started, that the, that the sort of cohesion that we've seen with the West and with NATO would eventually fracture. Um, energy security is one area that they've obviously done this with Germany, uh, but they're also doing this through um, leveraging and bartering control of food security supply uh, through their, uh, their attempts to dominate the Black Sea and cut off um, you know, the exchange of wheat. Uh, so this is uh, definitely their approach, uh, and I think we have to have more steel in our spine for it. Well, and let's talk about that. Uh, I was just mentioning about the G20 and the conversations. I, I don't know if anybody could actually classify that meeting in Indonesia as a success. There were extraneous factors, I guess, Jonathan, right from the get-go. Uh, first of all, Boris Johnson was announced that he was stepping down. The assassination of a former Japanese prime minister uh, and, and a number of other things that seemed to throw people off their game. Uh, there was no team picture at the end like there usually is. I don't think there was a communique talking about this and you have to wonder what what did they really accomplish there 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the G20 has been fundamentally under a lot of strains. Uh, I mean, the Russia's war in Ukraine has been the latest strain. So obviously having Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister there, uh, inherently created awkwardness and strains. Um, but even before that, I think tensions in the U.S.-China relationship, for example, uh, have made that, that body um, increasingly ineffective. And as you said, uh, some of these uh, these unfortunate uh, pieces of news against uh, uh, the G7, uh, Boris Johnson obviously leaving as uh, UK Prime Minister, and then uh, the very untimely and tragic death of Abe Shinzo uh, in Japan, the former um, Japanese Prime Minister, I think added even more unfortunate color to the to this G20 foreign ministers meeting. What about the, the by the way, the, re, the Japanese election did take place as scheduled, and, and his old party, of course, was uh, brought back into office once again. Was there ever a concern there about instability in the Japanese government because of that? Well, I think, I mean, the ruling party was expected to have a significant majority. There might have been a bit of bump, obviously, uh, after the news of Abe Shinzo's um, tragic death. But I think that the real challenge, uh, Bill, is going forward. Um, you know, Abe was a pillar of stability and leadership in a time where, frankly, there has not been much leadership, especially in the West. Um, we mentioned the G7. We mentioned the G20. Um, the lack of real strong principal leadership is, is very scarce. Uh, and Abe was one of those voices. Um, so his departure now, whether his successors can pick up that mantle is a big question, but it's deeply needed uh, in the West. Well, especially because, as you say, China is starting to really flex their muscles in that part of the world right now. Biden administration is trying to respond to that, but uh, but they need uh, allies over there. And, and, and you're right, Abe, even though he wasn't prime minister anymore, we're still that 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 pillar of strength there that would stand up and, and speak out against China when a lot of other people just uh, seemed rather sheepish about it. Yeah, I think Abe's lasting legacy will be, obviously he did a number of things in Japan, but I think it will be on the global side. I think it will be his ability to stitch together networks that are outside of just the Americans and, and their reactions against the Chinese, but whether it was the Europeans, and whether it's the Australians, India, obviously his relationship with Narendra Modi, uh, and even Canada, as, as slow as we are to to getting involved in this part of the world, um, really making this a global effort um, to uphold the rules-based order, to uphold free and open trade and investment, uh, and to maintain the rule of law, frankly. So this is, a, I think this is Abe's legacy, and, and I do hope it will live on. Talk about the effectiveness, Jonathan, of, of the G20 itself. Uh, you know, as I say, they didn't seem to accomplish a whole lot. There, there was some talk about uh, some sort of a debate about whether or not to exclude Russia. Uh, Russia was there at their invitation. Uh, I don't know that those talks even were held behind closed doors because they just didn't seem to be the support for it. I know that uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and others had talked about that uh, in the early days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that maybe it was time to boot them out. We've had strong language from NATO about this, but there are a number of G20 members right now that uh, I don't think really want to uh, you know, poke the bear, so to speak. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, this is a it's a really a double edged sword right now with with the G20. Because I mean, on one side, if you think about in 2008, after the financial crisis, this was the multilateral body that actually was effective, more effective than um, than in the G7, actually. Um, but its effectiveness has completely um, uh, went down the other uh, line uh, since that point. Uh, as I said, a lot of it is as a result of the US-China relationship. But on the on the positive side, and why I think we still need to pay some attention to this, is the fact that if we just look at the G7 club and just what we can agree on, there are some countries in the G20 that are very, very important that are not included in those G7 discussions, uh, such as India, such as Indonesia. We may not agree with them on every, every issue, but I think it's important to find some ways to agree with them on. So it's very, very tricky diplomacy right now, obviously with the two big authoritarians in that grouping. Um, but I think we need to find a way to sort of get some nuance and, and, and make this work. 
Where is India in the in the great scheme of things, though, Jonathan? I mean, they they are they're still dealing with Russia. They're still trading. Uh, they're still buying uh, energy. They're still you, buying arms from them because they're in conflicts uh, all over the place on their borders as well. Uh, you don't want to lose them, I guess, as an ally. But I mean, they're you know about their relationship with Russia right now, so. Do you, do you treat them with kid gloves? Do you try to bring them along? They, they're never going to turn their back on Russia, I would think, are they? Yeah, I mean, I, I would uh, urge that, you know, we look at India as India is rather than the India necessarily that we want uh, India to be. Um, and, you know, again, that's not to say we don't urge or, or, or make our positions to India that we feel that are principled and we should. Um, but frankly, I think that the India that is really consequential to the West right now is the India in the Indo-Pacific in its own part of the world. Um, obviously, has deep reservations on the rise of China, uh, the Indian Ocean region, etc. Strong ties with the democracies in that part of the world. It's not to say that we should look the other way when uh, you know when India is uh, gobbling up Russian oil and, and other things. But I think we have to find a way to balance this relationship as well and not be overly preachy with the Indians um, just because of, of what's happening right now uh, in Ukraine. The energy, if I could use that term, excuse the bad metaphor, of, of most of the sanctions is energy. Uh, they're talking about oil and gas, and, and uh, we saw the piece last week in the Financial Post that said that uh, natural gas is the new oil. That's, that's the hottest commodity in the world right now. Uh, Canada's a player, and we just referenced a couple of minutes ago about uh, the discussions that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had with the German Chancellor about this and, uh, and trying to tap into our resources. Uh, we don't have the way to transport that stuff over there uh, right now because of uh, we don't have any, any of the, the, the conversion uh, mechanisms over on the east coast of our country right now. Uh, promising we can do something about this, and I understand the German Chancellor might actually be coming here in the fall, uh, to talk about those possibilities. But I think the biggest hurdles, Jonathan, to getting something like that up and running is, is going to come internally uh, from environmentalists and another bunch of uh, people that are going to say, no way, Jose, we don't want to do this. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I mean, I think that we need to think about this not only as, a, as an economic issue uh, internally for Canada, um, but very much as a national security issue. And I think that you've referenced this still very well, um, whether it's Europe right now or, you know, this is a crisis of today, but what the crisis of tomorrow, frankly, might be in the Indo-Pacific and um, in our ability to get LNG out from the West Coast at some of our key Indo-Pacific partners, such as Japan, such as South Korea, uh, Taiwan, um, that's challenged as well. So I think that we need to look at what our partners and best friends are saying and what they want from a relationship with Canada. Um, and they don't just see this as, as trading. They also uh, want to work towards a green future, uh, but they also need to think about their national security and the vulnerabilities that they have in energy. Frankly, they're not going away in 5, 10, 15, or even 20 years. So they desperately need uh, reliable suppliers like Canada. So I fully agree with you. It's, it's a difficult political question, but it's one that absolutely needs to be broached uh, imminently. Well, and, and timelines are part of this. I mean, to build a brand new facility, would, I'm, t I'm told, take anywhere from eight to ten years. Uh, and that's if you, you know, get all the environmental uh, processes out of the way. And I don't think that's going to be an easy task. But winter's going to be only a few months away. It gets cold in Germany, as we know, Jonathan. And uh, you've got to wonder about the resolve of the Germans right now to stay strong with the, the G7 and, and the NATO uh, sanctions that are in place right now. Because when people are getting cold uh, and you know, they're looking to the government and saying, hey, you know, this is your fault. These are your sanctions. Uh, you have to wonder just how, how, how strong they're going to be in, in the face of that kind of resistance. 
Yeah, I think, and that's precisely the, I think the card that the Russians are trying to play is how long can, can uh, the European bloc hold out? And especially as, as you mentioned, as winter's coming, all of them are relying on energy supplies to heat up their homes in the wintertime. Uh, but another ex interesting externality that we're finding and facing that I think will affect the Europeans and um, Canada and the U.S. is, is further afield. Um, the effects of this crisis, um, you know, whether it's in, in addition to the pandemic, frankly, and some of the economic effects of this, uh, many unstable uh, governments and regimes. We've seen this recently, for example, in Sri Lanka. Um, we've seen unrest in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Um, we're seeing negative externalities um, coming out of these energy crises uh, in addition to the economic reckoning from COVID. So I think this is another card that the Russians, frankly, are playing is to distract the West outside of uh, the Ukrainian theater. Is, uh, are these things over and above separate from each other? I mean, you just mentioned Sri Lanka. Their prime minister just resigned uh, a couple of hours ago, I guess it turned out. Uh, there seems to be an awful lot of instability right now. Uh, was, was the Russia-Ukraine thing the catalyst for that? Or were these things just you know boiling under for the last little while and fi finally started to spill over? Well, I think the drivers were there before, but I think, uh, you know, I think my broader point is that the, the international mindset and bandwidth right now to deal with a lot of these different issues is just frankly not there. Um, we just referenced a couple of them on unstable governments, but another one, frankly, that is getting very little attention right now is the situation on North, with North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. Um, no one has the bandwidth internationally to actually think about these issues now because there's so many other things that they're trying to fight off and fight fires with every day. So I think, again, this is something that uh, the authoritarians, uh, they eat this up because it finds a way to distract, um, whether it's NATO, whether it's G7, uh, from these uh, from the priorities that they should be focusing on. Well, and that's a card they, they always play, isn't it? You know, these problems you people are facing right now, that's because of your government. Uh, and we've got the answers. And, and they, you know, they, we've seen that happen in other jurisdictions. Uh, and, and, you know, when people are angry and upset and, and things aren't going their way or, you know, they can't afford a loaf of bread or can't afford to pay their heating bill, uh, they're looking for somebody to blame. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a rather tumultuous situation like that. I mean, in the past... I, I guess we've tended to rely an awful lot on, as you say, the superpowers, and that would be the United States more often than not. Uh, there was a, an awful lot of concern, and I think legitimately so, uh, uh, over the last number of years, Jonathan, that under the Trump administration, uh, that that uh, that power that, that existed there and that kind of big brother attitude uh, was eroded considerably. Uh, Biden has tried to get it back right now. Uh, is, is he having any success? In other words, is he gaining the respect back that the United States used to have on an international stage? Uh, I think that's a, you know, you could have two two different versions of that. I think he's, he's desperately trying, as you mentioned, and I think a lot of his the adherents in his administration are holdovers from the Obama administration. But the reality is the world has changed, and it's not just what the Trump administration did from 2016 to 20, but some of the, the big global shifts that have been happening since then. So I do fear that, number one, um, things are changing, dynamics are changing, but also um, it's the will of the American people, too. I mean, how Biden can say everything he wants and his administration can say everything he wants about certain issues around the world, um, but how interested are the American people um, in really standing up for a lot of these issues? Um, there is a, a fatigue, I think, on many of these issues uh, from the American people. That's not to say that they don't want to push back against Russia and China, but especially some of these issues that might be seen as secondary or tertiary, um, whether America wants to be that sort of uh, that um, internationalist um, voice that it was in previous years, I think is a, is a looming question. 
Well, and I guess the other element, too, is on an elementary basis, the players have changed. I mean, Germany's under new leadership right now. Macron just went through a very tough election. Uh, Boris Johnson has stepped down. We don't know who's going to be the, the prime minister of that country right now. Uh, and with changing leadership and changing faces, you've got to wonder about, you know, the, 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 their commitment to some of these ideals. Because that's, you know, that's not my policy. That was my predecessor. And I'm not so sure I want to follow her or, or, you know, follow it as religiously as maybe people would want me to. So I guess we have to expect some sort of change, don't we? Yeah, I think you're right. I think this goes back to the uh, the original discussion on Abe Shinzo is that we've had such change when it comes to leaders. And I think you hit the nail on the head that not only are we seeing the change, but I think the division between uh, between one and the next is so significant uh, that there is some policy continuation, but often there is there is not. And there's contestation rather than continuation. Um, so, again, this is a, an area that is a soft underbelly for, for the Chinas and the Russias of the world to point to an example and say this is the, the deterioration or the erosion uh, of the Western democratic model and, you know, you should be subscribing more to our model um, of the, the, the sort of authoritarian control model. So this is, um, you know, it's a challenge we have to deal with. Uh, always a pleasure, Jonathan, to have you on to get your perspective on this. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, who is the director of the Indo-Pacific Program and also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. It's it's unstable. And and I know that's that's frustrating, as it should be in situations like this, because you're looking for stability from leadership. Uh, but as Jonathan mentioned, the, the, the situation has changed. A lot of the players have changed. And when you see instability like those, those who want to make moves, i.e. China and certainly Russia, uh, will try to do that in that situation. And, and you've seen Russia do that in Ukraine. And China's starting to flex their muscles in uh, Southeast Asia at the same time. So uh, it's uh, it's about time that uh, these leaders in the G20 and the G7 uh, start getting together and gain some kind of a consensus. But we'll watch that with great interest to see just how that's going to roll out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's back to business as usual. If, uh, we can never get back to usual, of course, on both sides of the border after the uh, uh, big kerfuffle that happened on Friday, of course, uh, with telecommunications. Uh, but one of the uh, major aspects that we want to talk about here uh, with the Washington situation is, is the January 6th hearings, the congressional hearings that are going on. There have been some interesting witnesses and some behind-closed-doors testimony uh, that we're starting to hear a little bit about. And uh, we want to talk about the implication that that's going to have. And also, of course, uh, with the uh, the midterms coming up in just a few months, uh, how Democrats are feeling about Joe Biden as their leader. Uh, to do all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, uh, we've heard, uh, of course, the, the testimony uh, from some other key executives. Uh, the other one that a, a lot of folks were waiting to hear about uh, was uh, uh, former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who uh, confirmed that he did do his uh, his testimony in front of the committee. We were getting snippets about this. Some were concerned that he was just going to clam up, a.k.a. like Michael Flynn, take the fifth, take the fifth. From what you've been able to ascertain from your sources in Washington, did we learn anything from Cipollone's campaign or uh, controversial uh, testimony? Yeah, so so we did learn uh, some things. We know, number one, that he did invoke um, executive privilege a couple of times uh, during the interview for questions that he believed uh, brought him into an area that would 
consider the uh, the information to be privileged, something that was you know between the president uh, and himself when he was acting as White House counsel. We don't know exactly what he uh, asserted executive privilege on, uh, but what we're hearing from the committee is that um, you know quote unquote critical testimony was provided on pretty much every aspect of the investigation that they're looking at, and whether that is uh, the pressure campaign on Mike Pence, whether it was the pressure campaign on the Department of Justice, or whether it was uh, the connections between uh, the, the inner workings of the administration and the kind of external factors uh, like specific groups and specific members of, uh, of the people around Donald Trump, information that they said was corroborated by Pat Cipollone when he was asked. Now, Bill, what's kind of important here is they said that testimony was corroborated. They didn't say any testimony was contradicted. So I'm sure that there's going to be more that comes out this week. I can just imagine that tape is going to be played kind of at a rapid rate during the upcoming hearings. Well, and there's one line from the, their presser on this, Reggie, that really caught my eye. Uh, it says uh, some of the information from Cipollone says it includes information demonstrating Donald Trump's supreme dereliction of duty. Uh, I don't know that those were words that came out of Cipollone's lips, but I mean, it, it sounds as if uh, there is some damning testimony there. Yeah, and I think what they're trying to do is work up a bit of corroboration to the testimony that we heard that kind of started this whole snowball effect, and that was from Cassidy Hutchinson a couple of weeks ago, who really opened the door to what was happening uh, during those key moments leading up to and the morning of January 6th, when she made those comments that the president knew that there were people in the crowd uh, who had weapons, that Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, was, was keenly aware to what was going to take place that day, because again, Cassidy Hutchinson, while pushed back on by the former president and key members of the Republican Party was a fly on the wall for a good number of weeks leading up to what took place on January 6th. So, uh, you know, being able to talk to White House counsel where, you know, conversations that he has with the president, sure, may be privileged, but conversations that he has with other members of the administration, possibly including Cassidy Hutchinson, would not be considered uh, um, kind of protected by any kind of uh, executive order that the president puts out. So there is a potential here that, that he was able to give them information um, that maybe is not a concrete tie to how Donald Trump is is keenly or, or specifically involved, but gives them more ammunition to uh, you know draw more lines towards uh, the, the kind of the center uh, of the Oval Office. Yeah, you would think that's going to be part of the conversation, though, wouldn't you, Registry? Because Trump initially, when when uh, Hutchinson's testimony became uh, pretty clear that there was some chicanery going on, said, "I don't even know who she is." Uh, and then we found out, remember, she brought in the diagram. Her office was literally steps away from, from the Oval Office. Uh, so to suggest that she was not a major player, uh, I, I think is, was a, a little ridiculous at that stage. So they'd be looking for corroboration there, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely, they would. Now, look, there has been some criticism for the way that this investigation has been uh, being carried out, both by um, by the committee and by the Department of Justice, by saying, look, you're kind of going after people who are at the lower end of things and then working your way up. This needs to be more of a hub-and-spoke style investigation where you focus on Trump and then literally you know, thrust yourself out in each direction. But at the end of the day, the people that they're speaking with and the information that's coming forward, a lot of it being corroborated between each of these witnesses who it's always important to, to kind of remind this, these are all Republican witnesses that are coming forward. These are not jilted Democrats. Um, the information that they're all saying kind of falls in line with their stories. And the only one pushing back on that is Donald Trump and those who are, uh, you know, kind of, uh, in a in a political sphere of potentially being harmed if they go against Donald Trump, those are the only ones that are pushing back on that. 
Will that change if we see someone testify like Steve Bannon? It is possible. It could happen maybe even this week. But for now, all of the uh, people that have been talking have all been lined up saying the exact same thing. What do they get? Let's talk about the Bannon situation. I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of a head scratcher for some people. Uh, Bannon, of course, is already in legal hot water because he uh, he defied a congressional subpoena uh, and is going actually going to go on trial for criminal contempt charges that was supposed to happen in the next couple of days. Uh, some are suggesting his his willingness now to to testify, Reggie, is is just to push that that trial back or maybe even to be exonerated from that. Uh, the other element is, well, what are they going to learn from this guy? He was not technically part of the administration uh, when all this stuff happened on January 6th. But are we to believe that, that he and Trump had, had severed ties altogether? Well, I think there's a couple of things to look at when it comes to Steve Bannon. Number one, yes, there is a potential here that this works in his favor with the trial coming up on July 18th. Uh, that, you know, it shows that he is starting to cooperate and maybe that works in his favor as he goes up against these um, contempt of Congress charges. I think there's another way of looking at this, though, in that Donald Trump, you know, has waived whatever executive privilege he believes existed between his conversations with a semi non really member of the administration in Steve Bannon. You know, the, the committee has already said we don't think executive privilege actually exists here, but they're kind of moving beyond that fight. But I think that the thing to watch for here is, is Donald Trump lifting whatever he sees as privilege to allow for Steve Bannon to testify, not live, this will be behind closed doors and taped, but is he doing this because he is... Uh, frustrated with the coverage, with the uh, nonstop kind of talking about how, uh, how this is damaging to Trump, is he allowing Bannon to talk because it gives him a dog in the fight? It throws somebody there who's going to be able to push back and bark back at the committee and stand up for Donald Trump, something that hasn't really happened uh, over the last several weeks that these hearings have taken place. There is a real chance here that Donald Trump thinks that in Steve Bannon, he is going to find um, an ally because, sure, he wasn't a part of the administration for very long, but has been a staunch confidant of the president and really, you know, amped up and pushed all of the bananas lies that the president has been speaking. This could be a way for Donald Trump to think he's giving himself a shield. Well, uh, you can tell the attitude, I guess, when Trump uh, waived the executive privileges. He says, you have the right, you can now go before those committees of thugs and hacks. So, I mean, it's not as if Trump has changed his, his, his opinion of, of what's going on in Congress these days. But the other element to this, I remember you reporting on this months ago, Reggie, uh, Bannon may not have been part of that administration, but he had a podcast, uh, maybe still does, I don't know, uh, where he bragged about the fact that something big was going to happen out of the Capitol on January the 6th. So uh, what did he know that, that that we didn't know? Was he in on the planning? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a line of questioning here I'm sure they want to pursue. Absolutely. And I think we may get some potential honing in on that. You know, that podcast saying that all hell is going to break loose. Did that mean that there was some kind of connection here, some kind of uh, channel to the people, the external factors that were involved in what took place on January 6th, like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys? And that's what Tuesday's hearing is really going to focus on, is the, the, the kind of threat that took place from these far-right extremist groups and whether or not there was a potential here for there to be a channel from these groups possibly through someone else, into uh, the White House. So whatever Steve Bannon says in the coming days, that's either going to run against or potentially corroborate uh, the information that the committee's trying to look for to say, look, it, this was not just a spontaneous event. This is something that had been built up for weeks and months. And when you have Steve Bannon 
predicting all hell is going to break loose, as Steve Bannon et al. were talking about, uh, you know, bogus claims of fraud and, and all the, the kind of, you know, jilted things that Democrats did to steal this election. Um, you know, they're really trying to, to connect all the lines back. And if Steve Bannon gives them another line to go back into the Oval Office, this is just something that they're going to run with. Speaking of the Oval Office, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, we've talked a lot about the midterms, but about Joe Biden. And uh, Joe Biden's perspective uh, on some of these issues uh, really seems to be bothering some Democrats. I guess a lot of them, Reggie, are concerned about, you know, whether or not they can still hold on uh, to that rather tenuous grip they have on, on the House and on the Senate right now. Because uh, if they don't, there's, there's going to be trouble ahead for the next two years. But I'm getting the sense uh, that, that a lot of Republic or Democrats, rather, uh, want Biden to be more aggressive. They want him to get angry. They want him to, to, to be that emotional leader right now. And they say they're not getting it from him. What are you hearing? Absolutely, they're they're not getting for that uh, getting anything. And and you know if you look at recent polling that just came out, New York Times put a poll out. Biden's approval numbers are falling even further than where they were, down towards you know thirty three, thirty four, thirty five percent. These are even lower um, than some of the approval numbers that Donald Trump had at his lowest point. So this is um, problematic and crisis worthy for the Democratic Party. And look, I talked to a political strategist uh, last Friday from the University of Virginia Center for Politics, Larry Sabato, and he uh, made this very kind of clear point that Democrats are angry because they all of a sudden. You know, everybody threw their eggs in one basket back in 2020, and the person that they wanted to, you know, succeed and get into the White House is now not doing anything. And case in point, he pointed out to Roe v. Wade. This was not something that you know, was sprung on the American people. There had been weeks notice because there was a draft leaked and the White House made its, you know, Joe Biden came out the day that it happened and made a speech. And then on day two, nothing on day three, nothing and waited 14 days to come out and finally make uh, a comment about executive actions that the government is going to try to take. And that is where Democrats are pushing back saying, why are you not coming out? You're leaving it up to the people to rally in the streets when the White House the president, the administration, needs to be banging on the ground, making a big deal about this. And that's where Democrats are frustrated, because they're looking at the potential for upheaval uh, in their power control later this year, yet they don't have the president out there hammering the message that, you know, Republicans are getting in the way of Americans' rights. And that's why he's watching his numbers sag right now. Well, and th- remember some of the, uh, the speculation that was going on, and, and you're absolutely right. They had more than enough warning uh, that this decision was coming down, and, and they didn't seem to prepare for it. Uh, and he could have, I guess, in hindsight, Reggie, been far more proactive and, and, and taken the, the bully pulpit right then and there. And that's what he got. I mean, as, as I know one senator mentioned on Meet the Press over the weekend, uh, you know, he's, he's his bully pulpit. He's, he's the president of the most powerful nation in the world right now. Uh, when the president speaks, people will listen. And, and Biden was, well, not silent, but not as aggressive, I guess, as, as he could have been and probably should have been uh, with some of the things you, you mentioned, for instance, about the executive orders that he could have and still might do. There's a couple of other things, too, about, uh, well, the gun control issues and things of this nature. They, they want an angry Joe Biden. I guess, and they want somebody who's who's going to stir things up right now, uh, and we've seen that in Biden in the past. And I guess they're pretty frustrated right now because they're they're looking at his his behavior on some of these issues. He's on the right side of the issue, but he's not powerful enough, I guess, and he's not adamant enough for their liking anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to uh, a president who has spent his entire career in Washington. This is a man in his late 20s, early 30s, became a U.S. senator and spent decades in the Senate, uh, and he's now you know looking back. Um, 
with an inability to look forward by saying, you know, he was the president who promised that he was going to get Congress to work together, except compromise hasn't existed in, 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 in the district uh, for decades now. Uh, and, and Joe Biden sees or seems to rather have an inability to understand this new reality that Democrats and Republicans are on polar opposites and there is no bringing them together. He can't even keep his own party uh, in line when it comes to trying to pass things without it being fractured. Uh, and I think that he sees the way that the Senate used to operate when he was back there, um, you know, as, as how things are going to move forward. And that's where Democrats, again, are, are kind of stomp, stomping their, their feet down to say, look, politics doesn't work anymore. It's a one or nothing. You need to get your party in action. You need to get your party running forward and you need to be loud. They don't have to play the dirty games that Republicans are accused of playing. But but ultimately, Democrats, you know, they're not going to be able to do anything if, if the president continues to sit back and think that this is all just going to work itself out because time doesn't work anything out anymore in this country. Only kind of solid, quick moving action. Well, and as you've been reporting, uh, what they're looking for here is they're not expecting Joe Biden to change the Republicans' mind uh, about a lot of these issues, but to motivate Democrats. So what would you say? Tens of, of millions of voters did not vote in the last election. Uh, you want to get them motivated to go out and vote. Uh, and, you know, what, what if you put the Republicans in, what about Roe versus Wade? You know, what about same-sex marriage? What about, uh, you know, and all, this long list of things uh, that, that, you know, they're suggesting that, look, they're going to tackle those things if they get the majority. It, 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 it's the way you play politics. And I guess they want to get Biden down in the mud just a little bit uh, to get some of those people motivated. Yeah, absolutely. And look, if tens of millions of people didn't vote in a general election, midterm elections see even significantly lower numbers. So that could pose problems again for this party. And look, there's a lot of stuff that's impacting, um, you know, this race right now. It's not just the Roe v. Wade. It's not just gun crisis. It's things like inflation. It's things like the economy. Uh, and these are all things that are stacking up against the Democrats right now. And they don't have a president out there who is trying to, you know, beat his chest to, to pull in, uh, you know, maybe not the staunch Democrats, but the, the, the kind of waffling ones or the independents and including those suburban women who he desperately needs and who the Democratic Party desperately needs. And if they don't see a president out there, you know, working for them, they may be working behind the closed door, but public perception is a big deal down here. And if you don't see the president working actively, if you can't see that with your own eyes, that's problematic for the Democratic Party in an election that typically sees fewer people come out. So, that's why there is so much pressure on this administration to just at least come out and give a perception that they're doing something rather than just sitting back and taking part in these listening sessions. Absolutely. It's going to be a big week at Washington. We'll uh, watch for your reporting on Global National, of course. Uh, Reggie Giacchini, Global's uh, guy in Washington. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.